Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me again this week. I'll be honest with you guys, there isn't really much to talk about in regards to the Bulls right now. It's pretty quiet. The team is effectively set after signing Jabari Parker. If any further moves are made, they will probably be very minor moves at the end of the roster. So not much necessarily to talk about on that front. But nonetheless, as always, I still want to talk Bulls and... The Jabari Barker signing is still the most relevant and interesting topic to discuss. Now, if you've caught the last episode, you would have heard myself and J-Pat talking Jabari, talking about the signing, breaking it all down as it was happening. So it was very raw and very in the moment. So we've had about a week to digest the whole thing now. And for something a little different, I thought it would be cool to talk Jabari once more, but To do so with someone who's watched him play pretty much every game he's played as a Milwaukee Buck. So I know we as Bulls fans, we know a lot about Jabari given his ties to Chicago and at a high level we know what he can do as a player. But but we're not experts on the guy himself. We obviously know our team, but Jabari hasn't been on the Bulls for the last four years. He obviously will be, but he's been a a Milwaukee Buck, so it makes sense to talk about Jabari during his years in Milwaukee with someone who's covered every single game that he's played. So on this show, rather than having myself and a Bulls guy talking about Parker, what I want to do today is actually get a full breakdown of Jabari Parker, the player, from someone who knows his game inside and out. And today, to talk Jabari, I've got Eric Name, a reporter and producer for ESPN Milwaukee, as well as the co-host of the Locked on Bucks podcast, Eric, thanks for coming on Bulls HQ to talk all things Jabari Parker from a Milwaukee Bucks perspective. How you doing, mate? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I wanted to get your insights about Jabari Parker because, to be honest with you, whilst I think I know a little bit about the guy, um, compared to yourself, I probably know uh, quite, a, quite a little, I guess, in comparison <laughs> to yourself. So I wanted to get your takes on all things Jabari and, and I wanted to inform our fan base as well because... I guess we've got an assumption of what Jabari is. We've obviously seen him play, and, and those that live in Chicago have probably seen a lot more of him than what I have. But having said that, 
it's pretty tough to follow more than one team, particularly over an 82-game season, those sorts of things. So you're definitely more informed than what I am and probably a lot of my listeners are. So I want to talk Jabari, and I want to talk initially about, I guess, the reaction from a Milwaukee perspective about losing Jabari. Now, obviously, Bulls fans are pretty excited in adding Jabari, but what was the general reaction from Bucks fans in losing Jabari Parker? It's kind of a strange feeling, but to me, the great Jabari Parker war is over because for pretty much the entirety of his career, it's been a war between two factions of Bucks fan. The the faction that believes Jabari Parker is an all-world scorer, a uh, future all-star, uh, absolutely someone that you want to build around, and then the faction that believes... Sure, he can score some, but also the team is always bad when he's on the floor. They've never been positive when he's played. Um, Every number would point to him not having an impact on winning. And that war has raged (laughs) um, for a long time. And uh, on Locked on Bucks, uh, as a reporter at ESPN Milwaukee, like I've just kind of been in the middle of it. Uh, And you have both sides very passionate about, you know, what Jabari Parker is. So uh, I think the general reaction was the faction that believed he still has all-star, superstar-type stuff in him was very mad. And the people that did not believe that were relieved that the Bucks didn't match $20 million uh, this upcoming season, which is just really tough to think of when you think back to the day he was announced as, as a Milwaukee Buck, was at, Milwaukee, at the Milwaukee Public Market. It was downtown. It was the face of a, of the franchise, and it, there was so much excitement around him that for four years later, for half of the Bucks fan base to think, yeah, that's fine. Um, I mean, that that's a pretty startling turn to in just four years to go that far. So uh, I think it was about 50-50 after Jabari's radio interview. I think it might have been 75-25. Um, as, as people kind of, as all the people that didn't believe in Jabari Parker were just nodding their heads and the people that did believe in him were like, okay, I guess I need to reconsider just what I thought of Jabari Parker. Maybe all those people that have been telling me for the last two or three years that he doesn't play defense, that he's not going to be good on defense. Maybe they were right. Um, so I think as time has gone on, people have been generally more okay with it than than I think you'd expect for any team losing a number two overall pick for nothing. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that you mentioned the the factions of of, of Bucks fan base and it being sort of split fifty fifty in terms of those that wanted to to keep Jabari and those that were okay in losing him. And now obviously Jabari's a new ball, so it's probably not fifty fifty on our side. It might be seventy five twenty five in favor of the deal. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because I can almost get that sense from the fan base as well that there is this divide sort of coming on our end now as well and and, and basically the factions are doing or saying pretty much exactly what you sort of said there and <laughs> I sort of fall into that latter group and I'm catching a bit of heat for uh, expressing my views in that sense but from an asset management perspective uh, what, what's really interesting um, in terms of Jabari Barker leaving the box is the fact that it's almost the exact opposite to the way the Bulls handled their own situation with uh, their own restricted free agent, Zach Levine. So obviously they brought him back and, and and retained him on his new deal. The Bucks let Parker go and obviously the Bulls brought Parker in. So in a sense, 
the Bucks have lost Parker for nothing, despite him being once a, la- a lofty uh, a draft pick. But are you comfortable with that decision and essentially letting him go for nothing? I think when you get to this moment in time, I think not signing Jabari Parker for $20 million is undoubtedly the right decision. I don't think you could think of this any other way uh, if you're building the Milwaukee Bucks going forward. That $20 million on Jabari Parker is bad. That's just not a price you want to pay for him. With all that being said, I think it does speak to the fact that things were mismanaged, things were mishandled, because the one question that Bucks fans will continue to ask and wonder is what does Jabari Parker look like without Jason Kidd? And they kind of got that answer this year, but it was 40 games with Joe Prunty. And uh, I think it, as you talk to Jabari Parker, as you think about Jabari Parker, um, I mean, I think Jabari very much saw Joe Prunty and Sean Sweeney and the rest of that staff as just an extension of Jason Kidd. As I've talked about the last couple of weeks, like the cloud of Jason Kidd was still very much there. So I think that question remains. And uh, to me, that was a misstep from the Bucks. that, you know, you never got to see Jabari without Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was a guy that he did not trust. Um, he did not trust that staff. And I think you could see that on the floor that he, he just didn't feel comfortable. He, he was distrusting of whoever was in charge. And I think that's a really tough thing to swallow uh, as a Bucks fan. Now, should they have lost him for nothing? It sucks. But when you go through it, there wasn't really a lot of great times to trade them. You maybe we record a podcast on lockdown bucks in December of 2016, uh, a month and a half before his second ACL tear. Uh, we recorded one then and people hated it. We, we record a podcast. Should the bucks trade Jabari Parker? And people were furious, hated it. Maybe the, least liked podcast we've ever recorded but it was something that you know it was a question that had to be asked like is this the time do you need to trade him because that was when his value was the highest and i i keep telling bucks fans that you can't complain about losing him for nothing if when we recorded it at the highest peak of his value you hated it It, like it's disingenuous to say well you know you should have got something for him well the one time they could have got something for him you thought it was a bad idea so uh it's just a ton of bad luck for this bucks team and i i think for me you're gonna have the jason kidd question lingering over but when you look at the injuries when they were timed when they occurred i mean i think it's tough to say that they should have gotten something for him because it the timing just never worked out the injuries gotten in the wrong happened at the wrong times and you know you you end up losing him for nothing yeah i mean all, all fair points and, and it probably makes it a little easier for for the bucks to to let jabari walk given that they've got uh obviously Giannis and chris middleton at the forward slots as well so i i guess there's room to move in that sense but you mentioned his contract there and the, the, the 20 million amount and that that was a, a pretty concerning number for myself. Obviously, there is a team option on that second year, and um, I guess that makes it a little bit safer of a deal for the for the from a Bulls perspective. Maybe not so much Jabari, but they've obviously paid him a heap in year one, and obviously the Bucks moved pretty quickly on in terms of signing uh, Ersan Ilyasova and Brook Lopez. So they were they were pretty quick to move on those guys. So it didn't seem that they were that intent on bringing back Jabari, but I don't know. That's how I'm just reading it anyway. But do you think the Bulls really needed to get to 20 million? 
to 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 sort of I get I guess get Jabari over the line, or or is it possible to get him an amount maybe closer to fifteen million, or would the Bucks have matched an offer at an amount closer to fifteen million? Uh, we've talked about it a lot this summer. The Bucks played a terrible game of poker. Um, if, if you were attempting to make people believe you wanted to match anything on Jabari Parker, which I think if you know you wanted to do a sign-in trade, if you wanted to get something for Jabari Parker, that was what you had to convince everyone of. Playing a card at 12.01 on July 1st in signing Ersan Ilyasova, uh, not the best game of poker. Um, that that is showing everyone at the table your cards. Hey guys, um, this is what we have. This is what we're interested in having. Um, and it, to to us, it just didn't make a lot of sense to make something, uh, to make a move that early. And then on top of it, you you do uh, you do the Brook Lopez deal, and you sign Ilyasova, you sign Lopez, and essentially you're telling everyone we're not interested in Jabari Parker. And that that makes it tough to then tell everyone to tell the league, hey, we're gonna match everything on Jabari Parker. We really want Jabari back. No, you clearly don't. We we can tell you don't because you just signed his replacement. Um, we know that you're not interested. Um, so to me, when I saw that twenty million dollar number, I was I was shocked. If I'm being totally honest, and um, I think as you look through it, I, I think Mark Bartlestein's relationship with the Chicago Bulls has a whole lot to do with that number. I think uh, just the fact that he is who he is, he has a relationship that he does with the Bulls. I mean, I think that explains a lot of it. Now, could the Kings have hopped in and gone all Kings on us? Yeah, uh, we just saw them give Bielitsa way too much money um, in a deal that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So maybe they had a $18 million out, offer out there for Jabari Parker, but there's no way $20 million was what the Bucks would have matched. I I don't know if there's a way the Bucks would have matched $15 million, to be frank. Um, that it. I'm thinking if I had to guess where that number is, and again, I I don't have a direct line to John Horse, but thinking through what I know about the organization, people I've talked to, 10 to 12, that that might have made the Bucks think, like, should we match this offer? Um, so 20 million just blew it all the way out of the water, and there was just no way that the Bucks were going to match that. Yeah, and and look, everything you outlined there was pretty much why I was surprised that myself that it was twenty million. Um, I was kind of shocked because I, I, based on what the moves the Bucks had made, it didn't seem like it was really possible for them to match that deal without making, you know, uh, selling off some other guys in their contracts, Delaver Dover or, or someone of that nature. But even doing that was going to be very very difficult at the time. But to your point, maybe Sacramento with it with a team driving up that number but uh, you mentioned Bartlestein there I, w- I wonder how much he was using the Kings to to play off the Bulls as well um to, to get his, his uh client a little bit more extra uh, coin there but I would hope he did because otherwise I don't understand it <laughs> no I know I know but like like I said I, I mean it's not the biggest deal because it, it potentially could just be a one-year deal but at the same time it is a big number on Jabari but look I want to talk about Jabari the play um in a second here but in terms of losing Jabari Parker, do, do you think the the Bucks are actually going to feel his his uh, departure at all? Do you, do you think they're going to be better or worse without him? Whew, that's a tough one. Um, I think in some ways the you know maybe the ceiling of this team comes down a little bit uh, because Jabari Parker just you know had 
had some capabilities that other players didn't. But um, while the ceiling is maybe lowered a little bit, I would say the floor is raised uh, because the the highs and lows of Jabari Parker were very real. The the plus minus doesn't lie that when he was on the floor, they were a worse team. Um, he across all four years, even in the year where he puts up 20 points per game, six rebounds per game, 2.8 assists per game. Um, they were still negative with him on the floor. And I mean, there's just no way around those numbers. So, um, you know, maybe there's a possibility that if he would have got with Mike Boonholzer, they would have figured it out. They would have found a way to hide him on defense. They would have found a way to really extract all the good from him with the offense um, and found a way to be a better team. But I mean, I got to say, I think it's somewhat unlikely. Like, I, I just don't uh, – I, again, I was probably closer to the faction of believing that Jabari Parker was was going to be a negative on the floor and, and doesn't have that all-star upside. And it, when you think through that, I think you got to say, like, yeah, I think this team is probably going to be better this year. And um, maybe going forward, they don't have that possibility of now having a, a third star uh, to go along with Giannis and Chris, but – at the exact same time, I just think you you remove a lot of the uncertainty. And I think that's, that much is clear when you look at the Ursani de Silva sign and the Brook Lopez sign. Those are two guys, longtime professionals, veterans. They're going to execute their jobs, and Mike Boonholzer knows what he's going to get. And that means this team is going to be good with those guys on the floor, and this that means this team is going to win like 50 games this year. So um, I think the Bucks are probably better – without Parker this year, you know, maybe their ceiling goes down a little bit, but I think overall they're not really going to feel this loss. Yeah, I think all valid points. And like I said, I probably tend to to lean where, you know, in terms of the Bucks side of the factions of, of where they were previously, I probably tend to uh, tend to agree with what you're saying there. But I, I don't want to be all negative because um, I am catching like some heat about that, as I mentioned before about the signing. But let's talk about Jabari Parker, the player, and, and let's maybe start with some positives here in terms of what Chicago Bulls fans should be excited uh, about adding a talent like Jabari Parker. Obviously, he's 23 years old still. He's still, I guess, got some untapped potential to, um, to, to I guess, find and explore there. But let's, let's start with some high-level uh, positives. What, what, what should we, as Bulls fans, be excited about? Two seasons ago, before his second ACL tear, 20.1 points per game, 6.2 rebounds per game, 2.8 assists per game. Um, those numbers, even if you take the the qualifier on assists down to two, a 26-2 and two season was done by 11 players in the 2016-17 season. Uh, in the 2017-18 season, just 15 players did that. Uh, so that's that's the very upside of it. Like you you get a guy that can put up numbers that other players just flat out can't, and uh, I do think you you have to wonder a little bit: is that who he still is? Does he still have that? Because I, I don't know if we saw uh, quite as much of that this past year, um, but I do think that is the high side. And and when you look at how he gets those twenty points per game, like he's he's insanely athletic. That isn't going any. Th- that appeared not to be going anywhere. Literally, the first game he came back uh, against the New York Knicks, he tried to throw down on Ennis Kantner like two or three times in that game, and it was like, wow, he's. 
he's still crazy athletic. So I think that still exists. Uh, so I think some of that upside is still there. Um, you look at his three point percentage that's gotten better as the years have gone on, um, mainly because Jason Kidd barred him from shooting threes in his first year, which just didn't make any sense. Um, and he barred him from that in his second year. And then finally in his third year, I remember, I remember distinctly, I think it was a game against the Indiana Pacers in maybe December of that year, maybe November of that year. And I remember talking to him after the game and he had shot five or six threes. And I just asked him, I was like, man, you're really letting it go. And he pretty much said like, yeah, I got to not think about it anymore. And like, just screw it. I got to shoot. And when you heard that, it was like, man, how, why was that not always the way you were thinking? And you could just kind of see all the ways that that coaching staff had found a way to sort of hold him back. And just to hear that in, in his third year, like it, to me, that was kind of exciting because it was him blossoming as a player. So um, I think you can get some threes out of him. I think there is still that possibility of uh, a 20 point per game score. I think all of that still exists. Like, uh, I, I just think when you look at him, he's got – I still can't figure out his dribble moves. I've watched him for four years, and I don't know what he's doing. I, the steps don't make sense to me. Uh, there will be Euro steps and step backs and between the leg dribbles, and the footwork that goes along with them doesn't seem to add up to me, but somehow that also confuses defenders, and he'll get to the rack or – He'll be able to find himself a step back. So um, I, I do think the shot creation for him is real. He'll, he'll continue to be able to create shots. Uh, the problem is sometimes he doesn't make those shots, but uh, I do still think he's able to generate shots for himself at, at a very high level. And I think that 20 point per game score is probably still in him somewhere. Well, it's interesting you say that because it, it appears that the Bulls have that, I guess, archetype of player slotted in the, at small forward or that's the guy that so they've I guess been trying to chase obviously they've got Parker now but before the draft there was, there was a lot of talk about Michael Porter Jr and for years there the Bulls were very interested in Carmelo Anthony and whilst whilst they all all those three players have a lot of similarities I think one of the things I, I think you could sort of say about all three is I'm not necessarily sure what position they are at least from my perspective whether they're a small forward or a power forward but I want to talk about Jabari and his position now. So you've mentioned his ability to score, which is obviously a positive, but what's concerning me is where is he going to score those points from? So the Bulls have made it very clear that Jabari is going to be playing small forward from uh, for them, at least for the, the start of the season. We'll see how that progresses. But when I've watched him play, it looks like he's played at power forward. Basketball reference in their, uh, in their play-by-play data has basically noted that uh, Parker has spent 78% of his minutes at power forward. As I said, the Bulls view him as a small forward. So my question to you is, is pretty simple. Is he a four or is he a three? And, and, and how should we as Bulls fans be approaching his position? He's a four. Okay. Um, it, I don't even, uh, honestly, I don't even think there's a question about it, which made, I mean, to me, which made his fit in Milwaukee always problematic. Yeah. Um, because Giannis is a four. There, there's just no, there's no two ways about it. Both of those guys are best at the four because when they're at that spot, all of those things that they do, the you, all the work that they do off the dribble, uh, the, what makes them both of them special is they're both strong enough to play against fours that both of them can 
bump against fours can get through fours. Um, they don't have a problem with the strength aspect of it. And then you add their insane quickness and their, uh, quick twitch abilities. And all of a sudden you have guys that are just mismatches for fours, which is really what makes them exciting. So playing him at the three, I think takes away some of the exciting things that, that he gets to do. Now, um, I was always fond of tweeting out bully ball Bari, um, when he got mismatched matches because he can uh he's got that big butt he's got uh, those broad shoulders and he is able to put guys underneath the rim at times so you know maybe there are some of those mismatches if, if he does get a smaller guy on him that he will be able to take advantage of that but uh to me he's always been a four um and, and i honestly have never thought it's a question what the question was in milwaukee was how do you play two fours at the same time and and that was why I, n- I never thought that Giannis and Jabari couldn't fit. They can play together. They're both talented enough to make that work. But when you're constructing an ideal roster and an ideal lineup, well, you have two guys that should probably play 30 plus minutes a night at the four. So what are you going to do? You got 48 minutes. So you you can figure it out for, you know, those 13 minutes when because Giannis is going to play 35 a night. Um, those 13 minutes are fine. You got... 17 other minutes that you got to figure out how you're making that puzzle work and it just never really made any sense to me yeah and and i mean it's interesting you hear you say that because obviously Giannis is, is a very versatile player obviously he plays and maybe guards power forwards but on on offense he can almost play the one but in chicago obviously they've got larry Markinen, who was the standout player for the bulls last season and and, and our bright spot hit the the centerpiece of this rebuild and He's not as dynamic as Giannis in terms of being a fluid athlete or anything of that nature. So to your point there, I'm, I'm almost convinced that Larry's going to be a power forward this season. I know there's talk about transitioning him to center, but I'm, I think he's that's still a little too early for him. So my concern is that Jabari is a four, as you noted, and obviously Larry is a four too, and, and how... And how Fred Hoiberg just tries to weigh that all up. But based on what you said, and, and this may sound like a dumb question now, but do, do you think it's possible at all for Jabari to transition to, to small forward full-time? Um, I mean, he's going to have to. That's where they're going to play him. Yeah. Um, is it possible? I mean, I mean, I think the question with Jabari has always been defense. And I think... When he plays the three, he becomes more problematic defensively because uh, the the best moments he's had defensively have been at the four. You think of games three and four in that series against the Celtics. His standout moments were when Marcus Morris decided to go outside of the Celtics offense and instead of moving the ball, he would try to take Jabari Parker one-on-one and Jabari would stonewall him. Because Jabari is athletic. Jabari is strong. The things that Morris can do, he was able to stop. And to me, that that's the only place he can find success defensively is when the ball slows down. When you when, it, when the ball becomes sticky, you're not moving it side to side, and you try to take him one on one with a guy that's bigger than him, uh, because he's strong enough to handle that. And then obviously he's gonna be quick enough to stop any dribble drives, or you know if you're gonna try to post up, he's gonna be able to have the footwork to move and to keep you out. Um, so to me, that's that's the spot where you can find success defensively. When he has a three, all of his worst habits kind of come to light. That he, when he is off ball. Um, 
I'm not sure I've ever seen a spacier defender. And I, I don't mean spacey in that he can cover a lot of space. I mean, spacey as in he just forgets where he's supposed to be. He, he doesn't really comprehend how help works. Uh, he's not sure where he's supposed to close out to. Um, he just everything off ball with Jabari doesn't make any sense. Sounds and, a lot like uh, Zach Levine. <laughs> it does, which is not ideal if you're trying to construct a, a team defense where those are the two guys that are going to have to cover the shooting guard and the small forward that are going to yeah. move around a lot on the floor. And it, it did kind of get to a spot where the 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 only theory that could kind of work was put Jabari on the best player because at least the best player is going to have the ball in his hands a lot uh, because you don't want to see Thabo Cephalosha go for his career high because Jabari lost him eight times on the backside and Cephalosha got layups and dunks. Like That's that's a problem. Like If you can't hide your worst defender on the worst offensive player, but instead, in a weird way, you have to try to hide him on the best offensive player because that's the only way that he'll manage to remain a part of the game defensively and not lose his assignment, not lose what he's supposed to be doing. Like that's a problem. It's a huge problem. And um, I'm just, I don't, I don't know how that goes going forward. It could be. And again, I talk about those two factions, the Bucks fans that believe in him, the Bucks fans that think he is hopeless. The ones that believe in him would say it's Jason Kidd and his stupid defense. It didn't make any sense. The scheme was all over the place. It was asking players to do stuff that didn't make any sense. So, you know what, Jabari's, he's going to be fine once he gets out of that that silly system. Um, everything will will be better. Maybe he's never going to be great, but he, he could be good in that. And, uh, I, I mean, I'm not as hopeful. Uh, the line I've always used is that uh, Bucks fans will be lucky if Jabari is someday a bad defender uh, because <laughs> – He's just that awful defensively. So that's always been the line I've used. And again, you know, maybe it will be different with uh, with a new coach and a new system. All of those things could change. I'm not particularly hopeful. You mentioned those Bucks factions, and and I want to bring up those the Bulls factions again because I guess this point is relevant as well. Because when when I throw out the point that I think Jabari is a four, the the often the, the retort that I often get back is, well, actually, he is a three. But he was forced into playing power forward because of, I guess, the Bucks roster and those sorts of things. So are you able to clear that up for me? The fact that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the Bucks roster forcing Jabari to play forward, but that's just his natural position? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any ways that I could argue that he's the three. <laughs> and whew, uh, no, I don't, I don't have any good. I, I don't have anything. I can't. I, no, he's not a three. There, there's not a way that he is a three. He's a four. He's a four through and through. Um, I the the question is so difficult because I I can't. I honestly, truly cannot find a way to tell you that he's a three. Um, he's a four. Everything that you want to do with him, the things that make him exciting, are less exciting when he's a three. Uh, the the ability to beat people off the dribble, the ability to use his strength, uh, the ability to uh, have the quickness with the strength, like all of those things are exciting at the four. They're not exciting at the three. And all of the weaknesses that he has defensively, the lapses that he has where he doesn't comprehend things, those can be lessened at the four. They are just they're, – they're exacerbated at the three. So I – 
no, there, he's a four, he's a four, he's a four. There's no way that he's a three. Well, I mean, it feels good for you to validate me on that and, and the fact that, you know, the way what I was watching and, and my opinion of that, I guess, has been validated somewhat. But you've uh, almost enhanced my concerns there because I, I this is why I didn't really like the signing. And not, it was nothing against Parker himself or his talent necessarily, but the fact that the Bulls obviously had Larry Market in, in place rather at power forward. So... That was my main concern, and, and hearing you say that, you know, adamantly that he is a four, um, I'm a little bit more concerned about, uh, I guess, Parker's fit on this Bulls roster, but moving that aside for a moment, uh, let's continue to talk Parker in terms of, you know, his best self, and, and if it is the power forward position, or if it, maybe it is the small forward position, who knows, maybe things can change, but what what type of players do the Bulls need to surround Jabari Parker in, in order for him to be at his best or his most effective best. So what what are those types of players? And, you know, you looking from the outside in, do you, do you see those players on the Bulls roster? Man, this this podcast is not going to be particularly popular with uh, <laughs> with your Bulls fans. Um, Got to keep it real. Got to keep it real. Um, I would say you need heady defenders. Yep. And you need guys that can space the floor uh, and kind of really have a great understanding of team basketball. Like you have to find ways to cover them up on defense and on offense. You want to find guys that can spread the floor for him and catch and shoot because that's when he can really take advantage of any type of mismatch that he might have offensively, whether that's a strength mismatch, whether that's a quickness mismatch, whatever it may be. Um, so you got to be able to spread the spread the floor offensively, which I guess the Bulls could do. Um, the Bulls have enough shooters, Laurie Markkinen, uh, I mean, Wendell Carter, like you, you got enough shooters. So that might not be terrible. Um, but defensively, you just have to, and again, man, I don't even know if you can do it because I, I just think back to all of the times where Giannis and Chris Middleton had the had the just slump of their shoulders as the ball went through the basket because on the backside, Jabari didn't know what he was doing. There's this one gift that gets shared around Buck's Twitter all the time where Chris is literally pulling his Jabari's jersey to throw him the in the general direction of where he was supposed to be defensively. Um, and again, Chris Middleton had a little bit of a down year defensively, but overall, he's a great team defender. Giannis is first, second team all defense type of guy. Um, you, when you when you have that those guys being that frustrated uh, with their third wing or their other big, like it, it's not a great sign. So um, defensively, I don't know if the Bulls have the the necessary uh, personnel to pull this off, but offensively, I think it should be good. Sp- spread the floor around them and, and give them as much space as possible offensively. Defensively, you got to have heady defenders that can cover up for them and and try to hide him as effectively as possible. So. Um, I would say maybe for for personnel in Chicago um, with defensively me leaning no and offensively me leaning yes. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, uh, that gives me a, a little bit more hope then, <laughs> um, but, but based on what we were previously talking about. But look, obviously we know Parker can put up points. You, you mentioned before he, he averaged 20, 20 points as a 21-year-old. So that in itself is pretty impressive, and he did so 
pretty efficiently as well. So we know the guy can get buckets, but in terms of how he scores, can you just give us a quick overview of how you know how he typically likes to score, um, where he's best suited? Does he work well off the ball? Can he get out in, in transition? What's his in-between game like? Those, those sorts of things. Just give us the quick rundown of, of how Parker likes to score and how he can best be utilized in, in a Fred Hoiberg offense. Uh, Jabari bursted onto the scene as hashtag baseline Bari. Um, I remember I wrote the column uh, about it, um, man, years ago, but kind of what he, what he can be really good at is if you raise guys up the floor and you allow him to work in the short corner area, um, he's, he can be a really nice cutter, um, off ball where his timing is really good uh, and he's able to catch and he's a really sh- he's just so strong that off two feet he's gonna put it on somebody's head like that that's just that's just how it goes um, so for me that that was kind of really where he got started and where he found his comfort offensively at the NBA level was uh, some of those cuts off ball on the baseline and being able to just kind of explode and throw it down on people. So I think off ball, he has some upside. Uh, The only downfall is if he's playing with a lot of other guys that are cutting, uh, he will cut right on top of them. So right. yep. you, you, you do have to find a way, cause again, it's that spatial awareness. It's that uh, ability to see the rest of the floor that catches up with him on defense. At times I can catch up to him on offense where, um, it, it, it can be problematic. Like Giannis and him would cut on top of each other a, a lot of the times. And, and this year it really became worse when they had Eric Bledsoe who likes to cut as well. So you'd have Bledsoe and Jabari off ball and they'd both be cutting at the same time. You'd have Giannis and Jabari off ball and they both be cutting at the same time. And then obviously two people cut to the same open spot. No one's open. Um, so there's some of that. Um, I think in transition, he's, He's a monster. Um, if you can really get out and run, uh, that quick twitch, the, that strange footwork, uh, the moves that you don't really know which direction they're going, those are all very exciting uh, because he can get by people and get to the basket. Um, from three, I think he's fine. Um, and, and honestly, I'm interested to see. I would assume Fred Hoiberg is going to make him shoot a bunch of threes, um, which uh, for someone who since the moment he's been – being told to shoot threes. He's been a 36% free throw shooter or higher, um, which I mean, I, I think should be exciting with Fred Hoiberg. Um, he does like to catch and drive. And then, you know, after one or two dribbles, take that step back. And uh, when he first got into the league, I thought it was super exciting because as I watched, it was like, man, that's what an NBA scorer looks like. Like you, you have to be able to have, those different variety of moves, some that get you to the basket, some that get you to the in-between, uh, some that get you a step back to a three, like all of those things create a really great score. Like if you think of all the way that James Harden scores, he's he's really able to do it in a variety of ways. So when I first saw that with Jabari, I was like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> some of those might be bad shots, but he can create them. Like he's always going to be able to generate those shots, um, which is exciting. But uh, when you bring up James Harden, the problem is he doesn't generate any free throws. And it's strange to say for someone so athletic, but, and again, I don't know if this is the injuries or if this is just how Jabari plays, but he seems to go around defenders as opposed to going through defenders. So even on his dunks, 
uh, there'll be times where he goes over the top of people, but also there'll be times where he uses his quickness and like sneaks around them and throws it down with the right hand as he's moving by them to the left or the right. Um, and, and his free throw rate is, is just anemic. Um, th- there's nothing there, which to me has always been the most concerning thing about him as a high volume scorer and his upside as a high volume scorer, because uh, I think we all know that if you're going to do that in the league, you got to get to the free throw line. Like that, that is just how efficient scoring works in the NBA. You, you can be great at all those other things, but if you don't get to the free throw line, you might not end up being a, a great scorer. So to me, that's the thing that's the most concerning. But I think that shot generation, all of those things are all very real. Um, he'll beat some guys off the dribble. If he gets a mismatch in the post, he can punish that. Um, he's always going to be able to create looks and probably openish looks. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not he hits those. Okay, well, cool. I mean, that that's that's kind of positive and, and reassuring in the sense that he, he does work good off the ball because... The Bulls don't have a lot of that. Their main guy that did that, particularly on the baseline, was David Waber, and he's probably going to be a casualty of signing Jabari Parker. He's probably not going to be re- re- retained. So hearing Parker is good off the ball is is definitely good to hear. Same thing with him being uh, an ace in transition. The Bulls want to run more this season. So you know, in a Fred, a Fred Hoiberg offense, playing up-tempo basketball, if Jabari can get scores without necessarily holding the ball, and scoring in transition, that that's also good. I guess the free throw line stuff, that, that's a bit of a concern. Maybe not just for Jabari himself, but for the Bulls themselves too, that they were not good at, in terms of getting to the line. And David Nwaba, again, he was their best player at getting to the line. So Jabari probably won't add that much from that point of view. But I guess why I wanted to ask you this question about his offense was, you've probably heard about the uh, the comments that he did make in relation to he's pretty much here to score. Yeah, um, that's why he's, that's why he's in uh, in the NBA. He gets paid to score, and, and scorers get paid a lot of money. And I was just a little bit concerned that maybe he's going to be trying to go out there and just maybe play ISO ball and really try to score the ball. But you've reassured me slightly there. But um, let, let's talk about Jabari Barker, the the playmaker, and you know, does he have ability to to, to create for others? And and if he doesn't necessarily create, uh, I guess, shooting attempts or, or scoring attempts for other for other players, does he at least move the ball? around the perimeter to, to keep the uh, the defense honest in that sense. He's a, a really interesting guy because when you tend to think of guys that can ISO score, you tend to think of the ball getting sticky, right? That, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if you are so focused on being guys out the dribble, you're going to want to, you you're going to want to put it on the ground a lot. And to Jabari's credit, he, he moves the ball really well, or at least he did in Milwaukee. Maybe it'll be different in Chicago, but he moves the ball really well. And then in the moments that he thinks he has an advantage is when he puts it on the dribble, which I mean is is really a nice it's it's a nice uh, habit for him to have because uh, it can be like I said really concerning if it goes the opposite direction. So um, I would say. It doesn't stick a lot with him. Uh, he is able to move it um, as a playmaker. Oh, man, yeah, he's really tough to grade as a playmaker because he does see passes at times. He doesn't always make passes at times. Uh, the Bucks used to, and again, one complaint that Bucks fans that really liked Jabari said the Bucks never run stuff for him, and I just always thought it was such BS because they do. And one of their favorite sets to run for him is elbow get, um, which for non. X's and O's speaking fans, uh, it's an elbow entry to the four, 
and then the five comes across to set kind of a nice tidy pick and roll. Um, so four on one elbow, five on the other. And typically they'd put Jabari on the left elbow so that he could catch, take a dribble with his right hand. And then if he had a lob to the five, he can make that. If he had a pocket pass, he can make that to the five. And when the Bucks were trying to get Jabari Parker involved, that was their go-to set that, you know, you know, we, we don't feel like Jabari's with us right now. You know, let's open the second half with, two or three possessions of elbow get for Jabari to try to get him involved. And uh, I thought he'd make some nice passes in those spots. Uh, and you could kind of see his ability as a playmaker kind of shine through because he, he had really good options. It was either two dribbles and he had a dunk or it was a dribble and a pass or a dribble and a shot. And you could kind of see all of those things work. So um, he's, he also tends to make some flashy passes as well. So I, I think there's, there's some passing ability in there. I think when you saw he had the that 20 point season, there was 2.8 assists. And again, people, I always end up doing this with Chris or, or with Jabari. You know, that's that's not an insane amount of assists, but 2.8 for a season per game adds up. Like from a, a second or a third playmaker on your team, you know that is that that can be pretty helpful. That that is not an anemic passing level where it's like an assist per game that means like you're not moving the ball like 2.8 once you get over that two mark like that means you are doing some passing and you can create a little bit so i think there's a little bit there for playmaking i'll be curious to see kind of how that develops because uh, i've obviously he's more focused on getting buckets but uh, i it's weird to see the outside perception of him is that he's gonna be a ball stopper but i've never really seen that from him in milwaukee all right. Well, I mean that that's great to hear because again, that was a concern I had of him. But you you pretty much squashed that concern. It does sound like he is someone that wants to move the ball. He's going to work off the ball as well, and obviously get in transition. So he's not necessarily maybe that traditional ISO guy that maybe I had a perception of him being. So that's reassuring offensively. But let's talk defense quickly. You mentioned before how he was, I guess, effective in that Boston Celtics series as playing as a four more as a a one-on-one type defender. But something that Fred Hoiberg mentioned in Jabari's uh, intro press conference the other day for the Bulls was uh, the team itself were experimenting with a switching scheme, a switch-based defensive scheme, which initially caused me some concern given the personnel the Bulls now have on the wing in in Zach Levine and Jabari Parker. So I, I wanted to ask you the question about Jabari's ability to one, play defense, but more importantly, play defense in a switch-based defense. Um, do you think he can be successful in that style at all? No. <laughs> no. Right. His, okay. his, his awareness is just so poor. Right. That, and, and again, this is something that I, I don't want to say I yell at Bucks fans for, but I, I guess I in general I scream it to NBA fans. Uh, switching has the the general connotation for people of being easy that you switch because you know, you can stick with someone else. So, you know what, let's just switch everything. It'll be easier for everyone. And you know, it'll be totally fine. NBA offenses are super complicated. They're, they're made with the best offensive players on earth. The best offensive players we've ever seen. Offense in the NBA is at a level we've never seen before. And switching is super involved. You have to, like, if you miss a switch, 
what is it? It's a basket. It's either a wide open three or it's a layup. Like those are the, to me, those are, are the stakes of every switch. And it, you're increasing, you know, the volatility of what can occur on that possession. If you're just staying with a man, you know, sometimes you might get screened and give up a layup or you might get screened and give up a three, but most of the time you're going to keep guys in front of you. And again, you might not be all the way there. You might give up some open shots, but you're not going to give up wide open shots because if you screw up a switch, that's what happens. And I just think there's this idea that it's super easy. And I always tell Bucks fans, it is not easy if you're going to switch everything or if you're going to switch one through four or two through five, then it's even more complicated because you're not switching everything. You have to be aware of what person is coming here to set this screen or to this movement. What am I supposed to do in it? So I just think the the spatial awareness, the awareness you have to have of the rest of the players on the floor, what's going on in each play, I think it increases with switching. And, and that's why with Parker, I just can't imagine him having a lot of success in it because uh, the times that we did see the Bucks try to do a lot of switching, I mean, he, he just tended to get confused. And, and I would think if the Bulls try to do a lot of that, that, you know – even if you do try to switch everything, teams are good at slipping screens. Teams are good at um, making that that action as confusing as possible for you where it, it becomes really difficult. So, um, no, I'm not particularly hopeful that Jabari Parker will be successful in a switching scheme. Yeah, and I mean, that mirrors my thoughts. I'm a bit concerned about, you know, having Jabari and Zach Levine weak side or something of that nature and teams running yep. – off-ball switches or off-ball screens and, and, and I guess Levine and, and Parker maybe getting a little muddled and, and losing their guy off-ball and then that player coming onto the strong side and, and just creating, I guess, problems from that perspective. But uh, I don't know. Look, obviously it hasn't happened yet. The, the Bulls haven't employed this scheme just yet. So maybe they do so when Parker is on the bench or maybe they do it for the first month or two of the season, realize it's not going to work and, and sort of fall back to something more traditional. So... I guess the book isn't written necessarily on this being the the one scheme they play, I guess, throughout the year. But initially thinking, uh, Parker didn't seem like a guy that you could run in a switch-based scheme, and um, you've all but confirmed that. But what I want to talk about now, and and it's something you've alluded to previously in one of your comments, and it was around his coaching, uh, the the coaching generally in in Milwaukee, previously with uh, Jason Kidd and obviously Joe Pronti for the, the back end of last season, but... We've talked Parker's strengths and weaknesses, but how much of those were enhanced or, or magnified because of guys like Jason Kidd and, and Joe Prunty? So this is where I've got some optimism with Jabari, and not not, not that uh, Fred Hoiberg is some uh, coaching wizard, but guys like Kidd and Prunty were maligned for their coaching ability, but do, do you think they were somewhat responsible for Jabari not necessarily living up to, to the hype of that number two pick? Whew. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I've said for a while now that I, I would guess the Bucks probably had, and, and again, I don't watch every team as closely as I watch the Bucks, but even just in getting to watch the other 29 teams in the games that they play the Bucks, I would say the Bucks probably had bottom five schemes offensively and defensively, uh, for the last two years. Um, and, and I just think that, uh, 
those those schemes didn't fully leverage the players that they had. They they didn't fully take advantage of everything that those guys could do. Um, so yeah, I do think in some regards they they held Jabari back. And um, even on top of all of that, not just the schemes, you look at Jason Kidd telling Jabari he couldn't shoot threes for the first two seasons of his career. That's asinine. It doesn't make any sense at all. And he gave Giannis the the same kind of restrictions as well. So I don't think that helped out in any way. Um, I think by the end of by the end of Jabari's time in Milwaukee, he was totally done with that coaching staff. And if you're looking for a reason why he would want out, it was that coaching staff that he, he just didn't trust them. Uh, he, he didn't think that they had his best interests in mind. Uh, and when their defense failed, Jabari was the guy that they blamed. And it, it was, it was just not fair to Jabari in any way because the defense was terrible. It was a bad scheme. It didn't make any sense. And yet, all they ended up doing was blaming Jabari Parker and uh, he, he it, it was incredibly unfair to him. So I, I do think there is some hope that, you know, if he does get a better coaching staff, it was always the question people in Milwaukee were wondering, like if he gets off this coaching staff, if he gets a new coaching staff, can he be something new and exciting? And unfortunately, they'll get the answer to that question. It just won't be in Milwaukee. Well, I mean, hopefully we get that question in Chicago. Not, not like I said, not necessarily. Or the Chicago Bulls don't necessarily have the uh, strongest coaching staff going around. But I don't know. May, may, maybe the maybe he can just link up with Hoiberg in a way he just didn't with Kid and Pronti. But at least that's my hope. But talk to me about Jabari, the teammate. So, you know, again, this is me looking from the outside in. So I might be wrong here, but I, I haven't necessarily seen an outcry. I guess from Bucks players or. You know, them being disappointed to see Jabari go in the same way that you saw, obviously, DeMar DeRozan leave the Toronto Raptors. And, and obviously, there's, it's, it's not an identical situation. But I didn't get the sense that Bucks players were necessarily going to miss Jabari um, now that he's obviously headed to Chicago. But talk to me about uh, Jabari, the teammate, and what kind of uh, teammate he is and, and if his teammates actually, I, I guess, gravitate towards him. Is he, is he that type of person? I would say oof, probably not. Um, he's he's an interesting guy because he's maybe the the hardest interview I've ever had. Um, just because I, I don't really understand what makes him tick. Uh, the times that he was he was really interesting to talk to was when he was talking about the things that he does in the community. Um, he was talking about like the topics that he cared about, which is great. Um, it allows you to, you know, write really interesting things about what he's doing in the community. But anytime it came to basketball, it, it, it just kind of shut down and, um, you just weren't, I was never really able to make a connection with him, um, talking basketball, talking tactics, talking what he's trying to do on certain plays. Like I just never really made that connection. And, um, I think he's a really, he's a really nice guy. Um, but I don't know if, for those reasons, teammates really connect with them. Um, if they really find a way that, you know, hey, we're, we're going to battle with this guy. I trust him fully. I know that he's going to execute what he needs to execute. And I think that just made him hard to connect with. And uh, I, I would say part of that is probably part of the reason why 
you don't see this outcry from his teammates that, you know, he's gone and, uh, you know, what are we going to do without Jabari or anything like that? Like, I just think that in a way isolated him. And then physically he was isolated from the team for, I mean, a solid year and a half with those two ACL tears. He was literally, uh, and again, he's at the practice facility. He he's around the, the, the greater team, including the training staff, but he wasn't in practices because he'd be getting his, his physical training. And um, it just I think it leads to an isolation of sorts. And I think overall it led to a little bit of a disconnect between him and his teammates. OK, that's I mean, that's that, you, you make some, I guess, good points as to why that, that disconnect could appear. And I don't know, like from watching his press conference, I, I, had, I had this thought that maybe he's just not the best in, in terms of approaching the media but he he did seem quite short with the chicago media maybe maybe it was just caught him on a bad day or, or, or what may you know that may have just been a bad day for him that sorts of things but is, is that how he's naturally is with the media that he he's uh i guess somewhat short and, and um he's frank but he, he's short with his responses and, and it sounds like that's typically uh the responses you got and if i'm reading that correctly yeah no that that was that was pretty typical jabari i'm trying to think okay. the the most talkative I've had him, uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, I do like baseball as well during the summer. And the Milwaukee Brewers drafted uh, a kid, Corey Ray, from uh, Simeon Academy and uh, the same high school Jabari went to. And the most talkative I've ever had him in an interview was as he was talking about this this other person and um anytime it's basketball kind of shuts down he gets shorter he gets more quiet he he doesn't like to talk about that as much but if you can talk about something in the community talk about a friend um then he's really talkative and fun um but uh, i would say largely what you saw in that press conference uh, that's pretty much what you'll get with jabari yeah and to that point when he was asked a basketball question he he you know it was a sentence or two and, and then the question or the answer rather was was done but you know, we heard what he said about Derrick Rose, and to your point yep. there, he was he was very obviously glowing, glowing of Derrick Rose, and that was the most passionate we saw of Jabari in that interview. And again, it's a small sample size for us Bulls fans as Jabari as a Bull, so it's kind of harsh for me to just base everything on on that one interview. But you know, from what I saw, at least that was when he was most passionate, and, and when you got to see the real side of Jabari Parker, and when he does talk community as well, as well, that's you can see that passion coming through, and. Yeah, it's just an interesting point that I noted. But look, we're running out of time here, so I just wanted to ask you two final questions, and they may be somewhat linked. I'm not necessarily sure here, but obviously Jabari is going to be transitioning to the small forward, whether he is one or not. But to me, for him to be successful in that move, he needs to lose a bit of weight, and it it just seems like it's always been a problem for Jabari. He's always been around that 240, 250, maybe even a little bit bigger in terms of pounds. But he probably needs to get down to about 2.30. So the first question is, do you, do you think he can lose that 10 to 15, maybe even 20 pounds of weight to transition to small forward? And to that point, obviously he's suffered two ACLs in four in four seasons now. But do you think the fact that he was, I guess, so big for a guy playing on the perimeter who was that athletic, do you think his knee issues or his, his history of knee problems is somewhat linked to his, his body composition? I think that's really interesting. Um, it's it's kind of tough to uh, figure out exactly what Jabari 
Parker is weight wise because um, I mean, these kind of, this kind of goes back to high school um, that he's had these, he hasn't really, he, he always kind of looks doughy. I guess that's the best way to say it. Like he's just not a guy that looks shredded and that same kind of thing has happened in Milwaukee. Uh, when you look at the transformation Giannis has had physically, uh, you look at the before and after pictures, you look at when he first got to Milwaukee, he was, you know, super skinny. He was not defined. He wasn't strong. And now when you look at him, he is all of those things. Uh, he he has just, I, I mean, you look at Giannis now, he's shredded. He's defined everything that he does. And again, they have to go in a different direction for Giannis. With Giannis, they're trying to find a way for him to put on weight. They are trying to find a way to make him stronger. While with Jabari, you kind of have to go the opposite way. You're trying to get him to slim down and get more defined. But they've just never done it. And uh, again, I it's going to be tough for me to blame the, the Bucks strength and conditioning staff, the Bucks, uh, you know, athletic training staff, like they're the best in the, I'm not gonna say the best in the business, but one of the best in the business. Uh, everyone, uh, adores everything that they do there at the very top level of all these things. And they haven't been able to get Jabari down. So, um, I do think one that, you know, maybe his body just doesn't work like that or two, um, you know, maybe Jabari isn't committed to exact, to, to, following those things exactly one thing we've always heard with jabari is that when he works out he likes to he likes to play that that's the thing that he likes to do that um that's what he's doing the most is just trying to get on the floor as much as possible and play as much as possible whether that's a pickup run or uh you know whether that's uh in the facility like that those are the things he likes to do the most and i do have to wonder if part of the reason why he can't get down is because he's not as committed to all of the the menial tasks, the tasks that aren't as fun as playing basketball. Um, if maybe he's not as committed to that and that is why he, he doesn't look as defined, why he isn't able to slim down. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say I, I would be concerned or I shouldn't say concerned, but I I don't think he's really ever going to be able to slim down. Um, and then on top of all of that, um, does that contribute to his knee problems? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, I do think we've always thought, man, a dude that big shouldn't be able to move that nimbly, shouldn't be able to be that explosive, shouldn't be able to be that much of a quick twitch athlete um, because he is a, a very unique package. Um, and I would say, yeah, we've wondered, you know, maybe there is something to it that maybe the knees aren't supposed to handle um, that much weight, that big of a guy moving like that. Um, but, you know, also at the same time, maybe it's just a knee problem. Um, yeah. There's skinny guys that have had knee problems before, too. Um, so, so maybe it has nothing to do with him and more to do with, you know, what just kind of what he has going on. So, um, I think it's a little bit tough to attempt to figure out, um, if those two things are connected, but I mean, I think as long as he's a bigger dude doing super athletic things, I think those questions are going to continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's certainly fair. And that's obviously me speculating, but you can sort of see why that connection may exist. But like to your point, it may not be related at all. It, it just could be that he has shoddy knees, but hopefully he remains injury-free during his at least one season here in Chicago. But look, Eric, you've been more than generous with your time, mate. We've gone here on here long enough, and, and I feel like I'm, I've got more knowledge about Jabari Parker, the player, now going forward into his first season as a Chicago Bull. So I appreciate you coming on. And before you get away, just tell everyone where they can follow you online. 
Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at Eric underscore name. You can find me at Lockdown Bucks, a daily Bucks podcast that I do with Frank Madden. Um, you can find that anywhere you find podcasts. So if you want to learn more about the Bucks, we'd be happy to have you. Um, you can find all of my writing at ESPNWisconsin.com. So I think that about covers it. Perfect, mate. Well, look, again, I appreciate you jumping on. Uh, and like I said, um, I'm, I'm much more knowledgeable about Jabari Parker, the player. So uh, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, folks, so be sure to follow Eric online. Obviously, you have all these details now, and, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was something a little bit different, and like I've mentioned a little bit earlier, I wanted to get a Bucks reporter's perspective because obviously he's seen much more uh, Jabari Parker and the Bucks and obviously than I have, and I'm tipping probably more than you have. So we all had our opinions on what Jabari was or is and, and how he will be as a Chicago Bull, and obviously... That still is uh, still needs to be played out, and maybe things change in his time in Chicago. But obviously, it's good to know his history and how he, I guess, played and performed in Milwaukee. And some of the things that Eric and I talked about today will carry over into Chicago. Hopefully, some of those negatives don't. But it's always good to get an, uh, the outside perspective, or maybe not the outside perspective, but where, where the outside is on Jabari Parker. But someone who is pretty much a Jabari Parker expert. So. Eric provided all of that knowledge, so I hope you enjoyed this one. I definitely did. So that brings us to the end of the show. Don't know when my next one will be released. It'll probably be within this week. I might do two episodes this week, even though it is a bit of a a quiet time here in the NBA offseason. Free agency is pretty much dead, and I'm not expecting the Bulls to be doing too much. I might have another podcast lined up with uh, a familiar voice that you've heard here on the show before. He's he's someone that you either love or loathe, and uh, I'll leave it at that, but... I may be back later on this week with that fella on the pod. But uh, again, you'll you'll be able to catch that in all your feeds or wherever you listen to your podcast. But follow me on Twitter at MK Hoops. Follow the show on Twitter at Bulls HQ Pod. And I'll catch you all again very soon. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.